Hello, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. This evening we continue David Cayley's series, The Earth is Not an Ecosystem. Six programs about the cultural and ecological limits to development. It presents voices from a conference called Living with the Earth, organized by the Interculture Institute of Montreal and held in Orford, Quebec, in the spring of 1992. This episode, the fifth in the series, features a profile of Iranian writer and thinker Majid Ranema. Mr. Ranema has had a distinguished career in the service both of his own country and the United Nations. He attained the rank of career ambassador in Iran's diplomatic corps, serving in France, the Soviet Union and Switzerland, and then joined the Iranian government in 1967 as Minister for Science and Higher Education. In the 1970s, he directed a development project involving a hundred Iranian villages and later headed the United Nations Development Programme in Mali. He has also been a member of the Executive Board of UNESCO and the UN University Council. In 1991-92, he was a Lester Pearson Scholar at the International Development Research Centre in Ottawa. In this program, Majid Ranema looks back with critical eyes on his career in development. The system does not meet the hopes and the expectations that people have, have put in it and does not even meet its own discourse. The only possibility of working really today in these institutions is to be subversive. He reflects on the pitfalls of more humanistic approaches to development. As a good activist, believing in certain concepts like development, progress, uh, modernization, and all that, I try in a very subtle way to organize my own echo. That would be my great success. And he talks about his current work on the history of ideas about poverty. The kind of uh, life that we want to prepare for the poor whom we want to enrich is really to create sort of candy-coated, sugar-coated miseries. Majid Ranema, Tonight on Ideas, in part five of The Earth is Not an Ecosystem, written and presented by David Cayley. The idea of development defines an historical era. The term was first used, in its contemporary sense, after the Second World War. U.S. President Harry Truman, in his 1949 inaugural address, stated that more than half the world's peoples inhabited what he called underdeveloped areas and lived in conditions, he said, approaching misery. The improvement and growth of these areas, Truman claimed, was both a moral obligation and a practical necessity. Their poverty is a threat both to them and to more prosperous areas, was how he put it. Development, as Wolfgang Sachs has pointed out, provided a reason of state both for the U.S. and for the newly independent or soon-to-be-independent nations of Asia and Africa. For the U.S., it provided a world mission free of the taint of colonialism, while for the new states, themselves artifacts of colonial power, it provided a reason for being and a mandate for a new process of internal colonization. Lumping most of the world together in a single category became a habit of mind. 
Development was the journey on which all nations were embarked, the hierarchy in which all nations could be arranged according to their degree of progress. As complications and contradictions arose, the term was qualified. There was alternative development, endogenous development, sustainable development, but the central implication of inevitable unfolding of history as a one-way street unrolling towards a common destination always remained. Today, even for many of those who believed in it and practiced it, development is at a dead end, faced with absolute cultural and ecological limits. In the last two programs of this series, I want to explore this dilemma. The final program will examine approaches which can imagine prosperity, flourishing, regeneration, without invoking development. Tonight's program looks at what went wrong through the eyes of one man who spent much of his career working for the institutions of development. Insofar as it can be told in one hour, this is his story. Majid Ranima was born to a prominent Iranian family. His grandfather was a person of important religious influence in the country, his father the editor of Iran's most politically significant newspaper. He acquired the first part of his education in Beirut, where his family lived in exile in the 1930s, as a result of a falling out between his father and the Shah. Then in 1941, his family returned to Tehran, and Ranima went to work at his father's paper. We came back to Iran, you know. Then I had, uh, I, I started, I mean, became really an active journalist, but a self-made journalist, because in those days nobody was learned. I mean, there was no school of journalism, nothing like that. So we had to learn these things, and I had learned it from my father, and then from life. Versus really the first days, I never remember. You know, the whole newspaper was nothing but my father and two other persons, although it was the number one newspaper in the country. I remember in the morning, I would take, you know, go into the, at five o'clock in the morning, I would listen to uh, BBC news. And I, I, as I knew I was, I could make shorthand, you know, I would immediately get that, you know, phone it to the printing press and then have the, the news. This is how we got the news. We didn't have, you know, the tele, the things you have now. So we had to be really journalists. With all, I mean, it was artisanal journalism, but it was fantastic, you see. Ranema's father was eventually appointed ambassador to Paris. The son followed as press attaché. This began a diplomatic career which took him first to the Soviet Union and then to the United Nations, where he attended 14 successive sessions of the General Assembly. In 1955, he was at the historic Bandung Conference in Java, where the leaders of Asia and Africa met to announce a new presence in international affairs. In 1960, Ranema introduced into the General Assembly the celebrated Resolution 1514. It was sponsored by 43 states of the so-called Afro-Asian bloc and called for immediate and universal decolonization. He then went on to serve as Iran's ambassador to Switzerland. There, he attracted the notice of the Shah, and in 1967 was asked by the Prime Minister to return to Tehran as the head of a new government ministry of science and technology. I said, look, I, I'm ready to do that, but on one condition that I don't get in, involved in politics. And he said, okay, come here, and you know, we're, we're friends, we can, I mean, you don't have to be a member of the party because, well, His Majesty himself asked, you know, so I can say that you're not, you know, a diplomat and you shouldn't do that. And when I came back, 
I, it was the first thing they, you know, the first trick they played on me because the night I was going to be introduced, you know, to the parliament, he told me that the Shah decided that to put all the universities, higher education, and the planning of education under this, the new ministry. I said, but this is pure politics. <laughs> you know, universities are the boiling center of politics. He said, come on, you can't refuse. And anyhow, I mean, so uh, in fact, I couldn't. You know, at that moment, it was too late. And I decided, OK, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, I didn't want it. And I, I'm going to do what I want. And at the end, uh, maximum, they would kick me out. And, and, uh, but I would have done it, something, you know. So I played the game for a while. In fact, the first six months, it was incredible. Everything I asked him, you know, he did. At one moment, you know, I found that the students, for instance, were fed up with all these chancellors and rectors appointed by the regime and so on. And then, uh, you know, I, I, made, I suggested to the Shah that all the rectors would be changed. He said, OK, do it. And then, I, you know, out of 10 rectors uh, in one day, Nine of them uh, resigned. It is a little bit, you know, annoying. I mean, it was not very democratic, but you know, in the context of what it was, it was really a, a sort of uh, war within different contexts. You see, so I chose, you know, these people, most of these people myself. Then I created. I mean, I had a law introduced to to give full autonomy to universities, so that the ministry would not be, but the universities become independent. But all this went well for the first years, even the first and a half year. It was very challenging. But then I found that uh, things started to get much worse because uh, conflict started between me and the, uh, you know, security people and others. And uh, you know, I was not, you know, I was a sort of lonely uh, person. The power of the Savak, the state security apparatus, waxed in those years. It got to the point even that agents were investigating library records to find out which students had checked out which books in the university's Ranima was trying to liberalize. Eventually, in 1971, he resigned and became, as a result, persona non grata with the Shah. In that same year, the French and the Chinese nominated Ranima for the post of Secretary General of the United Nations following the retirement of Utant. The Shah informed every member of the Security Council that support for Ranima's nomination would be considered a hostile act by the government of Iran. But he was allowed to pursue his chosen work at home. After 71, the, then the Prime Minister said to me, you know, I mean, I, why don't you come? I'll arrange everything with, between you and the Shah, and I will eventually offer you another post. He, in fact, offered me the post of Minister of Health. But I said, no, no, I'm not interested to do any politics. The only thing I ask you, if you want, let me go to a village, and I want to do something with the people this time. And give me, I said, you're placing 1,000 eggs in one basket. Give me one egg uh, uh, and do something. I mean, in, in a village, that you're not interested. And it would be interesting. He, he first thought I was joking. I wouldn't go to a village, you know, I mean, in my position, former minister and so on. But then uh, he accepted. In fact, he funded our, our uh, project. And the project later became, you know, a kind of, at one moment, it was a, almost a window uh, show for, for, could have been a window show for the government. Because it was really a part of Iran, small part, it was 100 villages, but where, for the first time, you know, we, we did fantastic things, in, in, in those days, at least, in terms of Iran. Uh, 
You know, we introduced a totally new way of training people. We introduced the Palo, you know, the Freudian uh, ways of conscientization, you know, for schooling. We changed the school system. We changed all that in that little micro space. And it, it was the most fascinating years of my life, you know. This development project lasted until the time of the revolution in 1978 and introduced many changes into the affected villages. The approach was participatory, based on the ideas, as Ranema just mentioned, of Paulo Freire, whose influential book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, conceived of education and social action in terms of dialogue. Earlier, Ranema had been influenced by testimony he had heard as a member of a UNESCO Commission on Education that malnutrition in childhood could result in lifelong learning impairment. So improved nutrition and primary health care were also part of the project. But in the end, he was not satisfied with what he and his colleagues had done. You know, we're doing good things, good things, fragmentary things wells, roads, little things by the people, and they were costing much less. And that's why, you know, at the end, the government was fully behind us, although they did not believe in anything we were doing. But at the same time, without wanting it, we were the carriers of a type of life that would be ultimately destructive of the way people were managing their own affairs. So they would, they would become dependent dependent on uh, state policies, on the kind of life today, you know, that modernity has brought and so on. And I was not very sure whether that was good. What made you aware of that? How did you see it? How would I say? Let me take first the field of education. Because it was done in a, in a wider context of modernization and westernization with the uh, magnets of, uh, you know, e economy working and pushing everybody towards uh, the cities uh, with more profits, you know, higher economic status and positions. The moment a person uh, thought that uh, he or she would be educated, mainly he, really, because the sh she's were, had a different case, but he would be educated, his, his first dream was to go to Tehran because he knew that there was no future for him in the, in the village. Progress, money, position, status, power was in Tehran. And therefore, by making things better in that context, we were really, uh, in fact, encouraging uh, the thing that we didn't want, which was uh, the rural exodus towards the cities, you see. I mean, this is one example. In my own way, you know, in my own field of, of universities, well, what I did, for instance, in a couple of years, we tripled the budget of universities. We brought in really hundreds of the best minds of Iran who had gone out and, and were uh, teaching in different universities, Canada, the US, and so on. We brought them by paying them more and by telling them, look, you would have a much better, higher positions and much more responsible positions and so on. And they came. And our universities at one moment really competed with some of the best in, in Europe. But what happened? Again, the same thing that happened at the level of the village, which was the exodus from village to the city, here started to be from the city to uh, outside uh, Iran, which was the famous thing that was called the brain drain. The dream of every person would be to go out 
So to sort of uh, desert the very space that uh, made possible everything for him or her, so that space becomes disvalued, becomes totally something to avoid, not to cultivate. Or but you entered into this initially with a, yeah. a concern about yeah, whether the children might be malnourished. Yeah. Obviously, there was something in the condition of the villages oh, yes, sure. that you felt needed improving. Yeah. Yeah. How do you now retrospectively see that something that you wanted to improve? That I'm not changing my mind, you know, as far as I'm concerned. I think this would be, uh, is, if, I'm, if I love these people, I, mean, I can't be indifferent, it's obviously. But then, you know, my approach to, to that would be totally different. Because from the beginning, I would say, what, am I go what do I want to do? Do I want that village to become a blossoming, a flourishing village with its own cultures, within its own possibilities, within its own limitations? Or do I want only to take a few individuals there that could win uh, the universal race and get really, in fact, strip that village from its best elements? Therefore, I would not come with the, the idea of development, which is, you know, this universal model of life. But I would um, perhaps do something that I would be to nowadays more inclined to do, go to that village, if I can, if I were younger, to, to stay there, live with the people, live with the losers, because 95% of them would be losers anyhow in this development work. Work with the losers and say, what's now? What can we do together in order to regenerate that space, which is not only attacked by uh, you know, uh, the forces from outside, but attacked from within by those who want to leave it, you see. I'm not against what a lot of people think development should do. But first I say, look, development is not doing what you think it does or it will do. Let us see what you want really to do. Do you want the prosperity, the blossoming of cultures that took hundreds, thousands of years to become what they are and, 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 and gave humanity a lot of things? Do you want those cultures to, to remain, those diversities to enrich the world? Or do you want, you don't care, you want one uh, type of, of uh, thing that is considered as the top, the best, and, and ask uh, everybody, generally the 10% of the winners, to come and, uh, and join that. You see, this is the, the, the core of the problem. <laughs> In 1978, the government of the Shah in Iran was overthrown, and Majid Ranima returned to the service of the United Nations in Africa. In 1959, he had been chosen by the General Assembly to supervise the referendum and elections leading to the independence of the Central African states of Rwanda and Burundi, which had been part of a UN trust territory. Now he was appointed to head the mission of the UNDP, the United Nations Development Program, to the West African Republic of Mali. This long experience with UNDP, which uh, in, a, in a totally different way, but exactly in the same direction, confirmed my, my doubts about development. And this time, uh, 
with much greater evidence, because I was right in the middle of development. You know, I was no longer in a little village. I was the full uh, <laughs> plenipotentiary envoy of the biggest organization uh, of uh, you know, United Nations Assistance, which is UNDP, with $1,200,000,000 million a year you know, spending on development. And I was here in this country, so I, I knew exactly now how, how development from the top was acting. How it was acting, Ranema found, was first of all deceitfully. In order to forestall the damaging charge of colonialism against the UNDP, the appearance of complete Malian sovereignty was carefully guarded. But in fact, Ranema says, this did not prevent manipulation of the government of Mali. It only prevented him from mentioning it. The second thing that Ranema noticed was that the projects the government asked for were, with few exceptions, not ones he thought would bring benefits at the grassroots. This was brought home to him when he tried to instigate a project of his own to create what were called audio techs, or cassette libraries, in Malian villages. It began from his reflection on the fruitlessness of much of the literacy training that was going on in Mali. Mali is a country of many languages, but they have not, until recently, been written languages. Consequently, even in Bambara, which is spoken by 40% of the people, there was really nothing outside of a government-controlled newspaper to read, nor had most of the peasants expressed any desire to read. But Ranema noticed that there was something the people apparently did want. For me, literacy would be a way of, for letting people um, have access to the sources of information and, and knowledge to which uh, that person would be interested. Now, I saw in practice that this was not done by the school, it was not done by literacy. And then through, you know, just uh, observing people, re uh, listening to people, going to villages, we realized that in every village in Mali, people had uh, tape recorders, simple tape recorders. And they would uh, record, uh, uh, we found that Two things were the favorite recordings, uh, you know, of people in most villages that we went through. One was a, a program broadcast by the national radio every Monday on uh, the national uh, heroic book, like, you know, it's a kind of book like uh, Iliad, uh, you know, or Odyssey, you know. And the second thing <laughs> you wouldn't imagine was Bob Marley. And people in Mali adore Bob Marley, you know. So, you know, we, we just said, look, instead of now pushing this program of literacy, it would be much better if instead of that we do something else. And the idea was this. I said, if we put in every village a little, uh, I mean, a little library, but uh, where books would be replaced by cassettes, and cassettes would be uh, done in the vernacular language, you know, of, of that place. And then we, um, uh, together, we you know, with, with the people, we had, this, we had long discussions. We categorized the type of knowledge uh, that people were interested in into what we call traditional and functional knowledge. The traditional knowledge was the kind of knowledge like the one I mentioned to you, the history of Mali, for instance, through Sunyata or others, uh, the geography of Mali, the traditions, the culture, 
the uh, med medicinal, uh, you know, herbs, uh, the kind of building, the kind of all these things that had that nobody else but Malians knew. Therefore, so so there, the the knowledge of what is called resource persons were there locally. The second we called functional. Functional was something like for somebody wants now to know what are the best things for um, increasing the crop or uh, you know building a house or uh, in health or or medical care, whatever you know really is the domain of present developmental work. So we say here, the functional uh, knowledge, we will discuss with the people what their interest is. Then we would ask our cadres, either national cadres or cadres from the different uh, international organizations, to provide them with the content of these cassettes. Now, the project, we found that for every audio take in a village, we did not need more than $500. It's very simple, because we discussed with the chief of the village. The, the chief of the village said, tell me exactly what you want in this project. What are the things, uh, the facilities you want? I said, well, we want, for instance, a little house, the conference hall, and, uh, no, and also at the same time keeping the, uh, the different uh, you know, recorders and cassettes. And, uh, what is it? Just one recorder, a couple of cassettes, and that's all. I mean, really, this is, this is what it was. He said, I will keep that in my house, and then we don't, you won't need anybody to keep it, and so on. We said, yes, but the, what about the hall, the conference hall, you know, the people who had this guy? He said, but, you know, we, we do this all under the palaver tree. I mean, uh, and you don't need anything like that, and uh, and we'll do it. And I'll keep this, and then... Palaver tree? Yes, you know, the palaver tree is the tree in the village. Palaver mm. means, you know, for the, where yeah. the people speak, you know. Palabre. Yeah. In, in French, they call yeah. l'arbre pal, à palabre. This is where the big events in the village happen, you know. They go under the palaver tree, and they sit there, and they discuss. That's their conference hall, you know. So he said, this is the conference hall. And then what? The trunk? Okay, you keep it with me. And then we found that it would, then we could have it really with $500. For two years, uh, I counted with everything. It would be $200,000. Now, I had to take this out of my budget of $60 million. Do you know the trouble I went through? Because we, troubles with UNESCO, who thought it was, you know, we needed more technical... Uh, uh, you know, professionally, we had to be done professionally. With UNDP, with the government of Mali, that was not interested in this. The government is interested only in projects where you could have, you could give cars, air conditioners, additional salaries to people, and then things that uh, are part of the developmental image. The audio tech ought to have been a model development project. It fitted cheap, simple, readily available cassette technology to existing oral traditions and habits, and it built on a practice which already existed and which people had already chosen for themselves. But curiously, as Majid Ranuma has already said, neither UNESCO, nor the UNDP, nor the government of Mali were very interested. It finally succeeded only because of Ranuma's personal authority and his willingness to bargain with Mali's Minister of Planning. He said to me something I never forget. He said, Monsieur le Représentant, I would say one thing to you, that I, uh, I accept this only because you wanted it. But I think that our people need more bread than culture, you know. And I said, uh, Monsieur le Ministre, if you think that this project is only 
uh, I mean, for what you call, I mean, culture, which is sterile, I, I imagine in your uh, definition, this is a very sterile thing. I don't want it. Please, please cross it, because I don't want to be part of something that, you know, to impose on you. Uh, no, he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, uh, I'm now that you want it, I will do it. But you, you imagine that he gave this as a favor to me in order for me to push some other projects against which I had expressed myself, one of them, for instance, for giving extra salaries to his own people in the Ministry of Planning, that really had absolutely no sense. The system does not meet the hopes and the expectations that people have, have put in it and does not even meet its own discourse. The only possibility of working really today in these institutions is to be subversive. And I call this positive subversion. I say, if I am paid by the United Nations, and the first sentence of my charter starts with the people of the United Nations, I don't care. I have to serve the people. So I will have contradictions in my, in my work. I will use the free spaces that I have to, to go back to the source, which is what I call positive subversion. Because the system has, has subverted its own discourse. I'm now going to re-subvert, you see, <laughs> so that, you know, I, in a way, vert to the, to the origin, you know. Uh, and this is how I, I've learned to, I mean, I did it in Iran when I was in the government, and I, I do it, and I, I do it even now. In 1990, Majid Ranama published a long article called Participatory Action Research, The Last Temptation of Saint Development. In this article, he took on the myth of popular participation in development activities. Participatory Action Research, or PAR, was the fruit of the late 60s and early 70s when the whole idea of development was widely perceived to be in deep trouble. Even World Bank President Robert McNamara admitted in a historic speech in Nairobi in 1973 that what was taking place in so-called developing countries was not balanced growth, but a dangerous social polarization. Growth is not equitably reaching the poor, was McNamara's delicate phrase. Involving the poor in their own development was one possible response to this failure of conventional administered development. The most famous example was the work of Paulo Freire's literacy teams in Brazil in the 60s. From the beginning, Freire wrote, we rejected the hypothesis of a purely mechanistic literacy program and considered the problem of teaching adults to read in relation to the awakening of their consciousness. We wished to design a project, he went on, in which we would attempt to move from naivete to a critical attitude at the same time that we taught reading. End quote. From this followed the idea of empowerment and the idea of so-called change agents who are themselves merely means to the people's awakening. Ranima himself had shared many of these ideas during the period of his village development work in Iran and had participated in the international meetings where they were first enunciated. But in this article, he identified what he now saw as a crucial contradiction. 
weren't these barefoot developers still, in the last analysis, developers? People who already knew the end, which they wanted the people spontaneously to discover? What happened was that a new, very subtle way of, of manipulative interaction started, which some of us uh, felt was happening. Now, if you had, I mean, I'm sure if you had looked at, through that article, uh, I still maintain, I mean, it's evident that I still maintain the idea uh, that the people should do these things themselves. But uh, there, I tried to, fo to, to focus on the dangers of this, uh, of the way it was implemented in, in reality. You see, if I come in, in, a, in a setup where I am already considered as a person with greater uh, knowledge, with greater experience, I mean, I, I, I carry all the aura that, you know, I, I am I'm better than them. Especially if I'm a good person, let's say, if I have good intentions, I, forget. I, I mean, they see that I haven't, I haven't done any wrong. I don't want them to do anything special. I don't want to exploit them. After a while, the first reaction is, is, is look, you know better. So why don't you tell us what we should do? Now, I know the good activists, the good power, uh, let's say, activist. Would, would say, no, 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 that, that's not working, and I'm here only as a catalyst. And he has to maintain this image of a catalyst, otherwise, well, he would renounce to his own uh, work. But if you really analyze the whole thing, is that um, I seek, as a, as a good activist, believing in certain concepts like development, progress, uh, modernization, and all that, I try, in a very subtle way, to organize my own echo. That would be my great success. I would organize the other person in such a way that he or she would say what I don't want to say, but what, I want, what I've been planning to do all, this, all the time. And then I say, now, you know, you said it. And I've learned a lot from you. But, uh, I mean, unfortunately, the person who, who doesn't constantly watch himself or herself would inevitably seek this victory that is have the other say, if I take the initiative in what really was not his or her initiative but was the, the, uh, the intervener's one, you end up by doing a wonderful colonialist work but with the full, sometimes enthusiastic uh, consent of the person who was manipulated. Once Ranema had made his critique of participation and dialogue as methods, he was ready to move beyond development as a mental framework. In fact, my first meeting with him in 1988 was at a week-long seminar called, bluntly, After Development, What? Ranema's personal answer to this question was, in effect, wait and see. After a while, I, I said, instead of doing that, and especially now I didn't have any, uh, let's say, I didn't have any purpose of, of continuing the old things, so I, uh, I, I was more interested to see what really the people themselves are doing. And this is where, you know, where, uh, without saying you know, whether it was good or bad, and that is where, you know, I really encountered a whole new world. People are doing a lot of interesting things, and it doesn't come to our mind what they're doing. 
And, uh, you know, we would have never d done this type of thing. And I said, look, why don't we try now to forget about everything we uh, think is good and try to listen to people and then s see that perhaps there are many other ways for them to defend themselves or to assume their humanity or uh, do the kind of things we think are, are good for them. And I wonder why we don't try to learn from these, uh, you know, uh, uh, these movements, these grassroots movements. In recent years, Ranama has been in touch with a number of such movements. The closest of these contacts has been with Swadhyay, a non-sectarian religious awakening which has transformed village life for several millions of people in India. The next and final program in this series will look at what Swadhyay has done, but there are many other examples as well. One which has interested Ranima is the amazing story of a contemporary Mexican folk hero called Super Barrio. Barrio is a Spanish word with no precise English equivalent. It corresponds roughly to the French quartier, a section of a city with common characteristics. The story happened in Mexico City following the 1985 earthquake in which many buildings were destroyed. Bitter struggles ensued between landlords who wanted to redevelop and tenants who wanted to protect their existing spaces. In this tense atmosphere, with a lot of evictions taking place, one of the people involved in the struggle had a vision. Ranama's account of it comes from a published interview with this man. One day he was all the time thinking, why these people should be evicted, why there is uh, nothing, I mean, nobody cares uh, after them and so on. And then um, he says that one day, he was, when he wanted to go out uh, he, and was uh, all the time obsessed by this idea, he, he himself having been evicted uh, in his youth, he saw the door open and um, a huge uh, wind uh, with, uh, with two colors, red and uh, uh, yellow, came into the room. And then uh, he heard a voice that you shall be the super barrio and you shall be the whipper of the landlords and the defender of the of the weak. I said, it comes right out of a kind of uh, Garcia Marquez novel. And this this fellow find, found himself suddenly in a in a mask with a, you know, in a cap like Superman, red and, and yellow. And he just said, well, I, mean, I have to tell this to my friends. So he went to his, uh, he went telling his friends, well, this had happened to him. And now he is a masked person, like a Superman. And he had been a luchador, you know, in the tradition of the Mexicans. These are, he had been a fighter in his youth. A luchador? A luchador, they call you know, a wrestler. Yeah. But he was a vendor, street vendor. Then, you know, the, then the, the, the others find that this is absolutely fantastic. They said, no, no, you should be that, and we're going to back you. So here was the creation of a totally incredible uh, personage, which was the Super Barrio. And now, you know, Super Barrio has got so much uh, importance, got so much at least importance from the, I mean, after that, that there is, uh, the, the other day, in fact, when I was in Mexico, I heard suddenly a kind of little, um, they call cojete something, you know, a, a little explosion, like fire, fireworks. Fire, firework. And then I said, what is this? They said, well, somebody is going to be evicted or the police is around. So this is the first sign. So the whole neighborhood comes out to take an action immediately against any possible intervention from the police. And in the meantime, 
through a kind of <laughs> vernacular communication system with all these uh, fireworks, comes Super Mario where, wherever he is with his mask. And when he comes, nobody ever dares to intervene because they, they, they would face a riot. He has gone to the parliament. One day he just went to the parliament. Nobody could stop him. And he made a speech in the parliament, you know, addressing uh, the deputy, telling them that the, some of them were thieves and so on. You have here the super barrio phenomenon. Who could ever, out of the interveners, think that such a solution could be found in order to defend uh, the poor, the evicted, and so on? Come and say this to uh, UNDP or CEDA or IDRC. I mean, <laughs> they would say you're just crazy, but it works. I mean, our kind of things probably work in a different way, but they don't work for exactly for the people. This is where people, when left, where, where they are left really to their imagination, to their creativity, they respond. And they find uh, very, very interesting ways. Majid Ranama's current work is a book on the meaning of poverty. A preview was published in 1991 in Interculture's quarterly journal under the title Global Poverty, a Pauperizing Myth. There, Ranama explored the history of the idea of poverty and pointed out that it always changes in lockstep with concurrent conceptions of what constitutes a need and what, in given circumstances, is enough. I come from a family where my grandfather, when he died, you know, he said to his children, uh, you know, um, I have left nothing for you, but I, I don't think you will ever be poor because uh, probably I left you with something that uh, if you follow that, you, you, will, you will be very, very well off all your life. And that's the idea of needlessness, which is part of my belief. He was a Darvish, he was a Sufi. If poverty is nothing but lacks and resources to be found in order to meet those lacks or deficiencies, especially in economic terms, how is it that in the richest country in the world or in the history of the world, which is the United States, you have still 40 million people who, according to official statistics, below the poverty line? So then I found that the problem is not simple. I mean, if we go on in just taking in economic terms, defining the poor and then solving the problem of the poor, we will find that really we always, it's a rat race between needs that we will impute to people all the time and resources that would never be available to them. I think I told you the other day, I mean, I'm thinking to call, in fact, the book I'm, I'm now writing on poverty, the painful loss of enriching poverties. Because I, I have the feeling that there are a lot of poverties that were beautiful, that did not correspond to, to a miserly or, or, or a, a destitute way of living. That great people like St. Francis or other prophets or people chose as the best way for them to live. And, now, these poverties when, uh, are, are very important things from which we can learn and through which we can see the kind of miseries that we are preparing in the name of, of, of richness. 
So there's a kind of thinking that should go into the, into the world. What is, what, what is to be rich and what is to be poor? And uh, unfortunately, no language can help us because the word poverty is one of the few words that has always time its opposite within it. I mean, you don't know. When you say, for instance, uh, you, you know very well that most cultures have um, glorified voluntary poverty because they've seen always great people who have chosen to live as simple, uh, you know, frugal uh, people who, who were ready to share with others and not to accumulate. Now, uh, you also know that, there are, uh, that most cultures despise the, uh, the kind of uh, richness that you get out of ostentatious uh, accumulation of wealth. So poverty may be a kind of richness, and richness can be a very, way, a very poor, miserable way of living. So let us just get out of all these things and say, uh, perhaps find new ways of tackling this question. Development theory has generally spurned Ranema's relativistic sense of what constitutes poverty and relied instead on a single, absolute standard. It has derived this standard from the formal economic categories in which we conventionally judge whether people are better or worse off, income, employment, gross product, and so on. This has served to disguise the fact that where production for the market supplants subsistence, poverty often increases along with wealth. When we destroy, on the one hand, people's subsistence, and this is what modernity has been. For 500 years, it has been a war on people's way of living. And we make them dependent on uh, so many things that uh, are good in a particular fragmented frame but uh, upset people's life, upset people's autonomy, upset people's way of dealing with these problems, I think what then we bring in terms of solution is, is just band-aid operation. It's like you make somebody sick, but then you give, you give that person aspirin. The whole uh, system, economic system of production in, the, uh, in Africa has been distorted both by the introduction of uh, the capitalist system of production and also by the creation of, of the nation states that uh, are, are sort of modern uh, creations. They don't correspond to the way uh, people organized their own governance before. So as a result of that, people depend on the market, like in Mali and uh, in Senegal, where I was there, you know, that pressures from every side, especially the World Bank, giving credits to replace multi-cultures by uh, peanut, uh, the uh, you know, ground nut uh, culture, because it was better in the market. So they gave them credits. For a while, the situation became better. But as a result, you know, one day, the, the price of the peanuts fell on, on the markets, and uh, a lot of peasants were deprived from their own ways of doing things. You have excellent studies in that, in that, uh, you know, on that matter. I don't know whether you've seen, for instance, this silent violence um, of uh, Michael Watt. Now, uh, he, he says, he shows how, you know, in, in Nigeria, the introduction of this whole capitalist system of production destroyed the very basis of food security. For Majid Ranama, 
Part of understanding the failure of development is understanding that it cannot be replaced by some other comprehensive answer. In his view, development's pretension to universality was the reason it was so destructive. A new universalism would therefore miss the point. What Ranema wants to know is what it's like to live without a panacea in your pocket. I have the feeling if we stop thinking in terms of institutions and just realize that institutions are dead, but all institutions are run by human beings who, who can choose between death and, and life. I mean, you, if you're a bureaucrat, you have chosen to be dead, I mean, to be a respectable mummy or, or, you know. But if you are, uh, if you have chosen to be a free person, then I think, despite everything you have today, a lot of surprise is waiting for us. And my, per I mean, my only hope in future, in the, I'm not even in that period. I think I have passed that period where I would say everything would come from the grassroots. This is beautiful. Everything that comes from the people are beautiful. No, I don't share that because I think it's that massive view is something that doesn't correspond to truth. But what I can say probably with certainty is uh, the kind of unpredictability of, of, of the world in which we live and which is full of full of surprises and full of beautiful surprises as bad surprises. But, you know, it is a serendipitous, serendipitous world, you know. Anything can happen. Can, did anyone foresee what happened in the Soviet Union? No. And today, if we think that we are secure because we live in uh, the United States or in Canada, countries that think that now, I mean, they, they are not, I mean, they have never been in that communist thing, or they are, um, capitalism is going to protect them, I really think they should be crazy. Because, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> no, one, no one knows. No one knows what will happen to, to this capitalism. No one knows what, what's going to happen in things the moment we really look, look into them. All these things that have been these uncertainties that become now the only certainty of, uh, of, that one can rely, I mean, the certainty of uncertainties then will make us probably depend less on our certainties and would make us become human beings. And I think the moment we really become human beings and we know that being is relating with others and, tot and have a totally different way of life, perhaps all these solutions, I mean, all these problems would be solved by themselves. I mean, you will see that probably, I mean, poverty is a very simple thing and it, it may have disappeared if you have different types of human beings. But if you don't have them, well, uh, nothing will happen. And perhaps we are reaching a, 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 that world in which uh, a lot of unpredicted changes, unpredictable changes can happen. On Ideas, you've been listening to a profile of Iranian writer and thinker Majid Ranima. The program was part five of our series, The Earth is Not an Ecosystem, written and presented by David Cayley. The series concludes tomorrow night with a look at two grassroots movements in India, Swadhyay and Chipko. Technical production was by Lon Tulk, production assistants Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $5, $20 is the price for the entire six-part series. Write to Ideas Transcripts, 
Ecosystem, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. A collection of David Cayley's earlier programs on ecology is available in book form from James Lorimer and Company. It's called The Age of Ecology, and it's in bookstores now. The executive producer of ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Bandung was the greatest moment of uh, the history of the Third World because it was the first time, you know, you had the big names, Nehru, Chuenlai, Sokarno, Nkrumah, Nasser, you know, all these giants of the Third World. They came uh, to Bandung to decide that there was no longer, you know, uh, I mean, the uh, U.S. And, and the USSR and then Europe, but there, there, something was emerging. So we had this huge conference. And Iran in those days was, you know, uh, pro-American and so on, not represented by uh, anybody at the top. And that, in a way, was good because, you know, as, as a result of that, we could be there, you know, in a small de delegation. And I could have, I was given, you know, very young, I was given a role, to, you know, an important role to, re to make the, the speeches and do this and do that, get into I mean, I could talk to Nehru, I could talk, you know, to Chuenlai. I mean, this was, you know, as a delegate, and this was something extraordinary. You know, I came out of there, and this was really my commitment with the Third World, started from, uh, with Bandung. This commitment continued. If there are really projects of interest to the big powers, 
they can easily, easily, you know, act so that the government of Mali would say, I want this project rather than another. And therefore, you, you know, it's not American uh, pressure. The government itself asks. Now here, if as, uh, as a, uh, what we call UN uh, resident representative, I come and I say, well, really, that, is that, does that project make sense? You say, oh, no, 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 you can't go into, I mean, you are interfering into, into Malian sovereignty. I mean, the Malians have asked for it, and that's all. 